Morning, good to see you. Um, I don't know how your week has been, but you have officially survived the polar vortex. If you're going to use language like polar vortex, or something even about that term that has such severity to it, um, driving into <laughs> to Summit today, you saw little like drops of snow on some of the roofs. It was like, vortex, awesome. Um, I really hope that's as significant as it's going to get this winter. I don't know if that's going to be the case. Um, it's, uh, it's great to be back with you this morning, and... Um, I, uh, when the pastors asked me to consider coming back and teaching uh, this fall, uh, now turn winter pretty quickly, um, I just basically said, hey, whatever, you know, in the last year of what I've taught at the church in which I pastor, feel free to just pick something and, and that's fine with me. And uh, they chose a particular text. We're walking through the epistle of 1 Peter uh, at Trinity Grace, uh, where I am. And um, they chose a particular text that um, is a very demanding text. Um, it's a very challenging text, and not challenging in a sense of, okay, now you need to do more religiously and be better and, and perform better, and then this will happen, and then, but challenging in a sense that um, I think that the call to the way of Jesus is never easy, but it's always worth it. One of the things you see over and over in the Gospels is Jesus really laying out the extent of the call to follow him and people consistently walking away. All the time, the crowds come in, they're excited. Finally, the, hope, the hoped one, the prophetic one, the, 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 the prophesied one that was to come and let's go hear what he has to say and let's be healed of our diseases and as they're healed of their diseases and they're given the task of what it means to live into the way of Jesus, many of them leave sad because it's very demanding. Not in a way that you have to earn anything, but a way that it calls us from all of our addictions to control, all of our addictions to the self, all of our addictions to individualism, all of these things that I know for me, it's so easy to clutch onto. And so we're going to journey through this text, and as we do, um, let me read it, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll just ask God to come and speak to our hearts and our minds as we move into the next half hour of our lives together. First Peter 2, verse 4, come to him, a living stone. Though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. Lord, we do, we ask that as you have done generation after generation to awaken the minds and hearts of your people through the text. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work through this text in our own hearts and minds, that we may be people that are renewed, that are given new vision, new life, that experience a piece of your resurrection, which is a foretaste of the resurrection to come in which even after we have died, we will be risen to new life to reign with you forever. We thank you, we anticipate that day, and yet we long to live faithfully in this moment. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
what Peter is doing in this letter is he's writing to the churches that are dispersed all across the Roman Empire, specifically in Asia Minor at this point. And he's writing this letter that the churches would circulate from town to town, gathering in houses. And so it's a letter that sort of transcends one locale. It's not just to Ephesus, or it's not just to Laodicea, but it's actually designed to be circulated all across the Asia, Asia Minor and now into the heart of Summit in New Jersey. And so let's receive it with the same spirit in which the early Christians would have received it as well. So to begin our time together, let's start in Istanbul. Anyone been to Istanbul? little show of hands. Got a couple of you. You No doubt, if you've been to Istanbul, you've heard of this building. It's called the Hagia Sophia. The Hagia Sophia is a, probably the most incredible church structure that was ever constructed. Sixth century, they started construction, and it was sort of the center of Eastern Christianity, really of all of Christianity, as it became the seat of the Roman Empire, became Constantinople in this time. And so it was built in the sixth century and arguably the best church building that was ever conceived. But here is the reality. If you look at this lady at the bottom left scratching her head, what you'll find is that this lady has not come to worship. This lady has not come to be a part of a community. This lady has not come to hear the gospel. This lady is a tourist, and this is a museum, which sets up all sorts of questions. I remember when I was teaching this text in my own community in Chelsea, all sorts of questions about how, how do we take this text and how do we take what Peter wants to say to the churches across the world? And yet, how do we cope with the reality for our crisis this morning that I think Peter's letter wants to help us avoid? And that crisis is this. And I'm going to ask you to try this on as a lens as we look into this text. The crisis is why do so many churches trend toward museum? I mean, if you've been all over Europe, I mean, you see all these sorts of amazing church buildings that are basically places for afternoon tour guides. It's a really fascinating thing. How does a church like the Hagia Sophia, one of the greatest churches the world has ever known, end up giving tour guides on a weekly basis rather than giving gospel truth? How does that happen? How is it as well that so many churches, even in our own time, even in our own country, even in some of the the churches that perhaps some of you grew up in, if you grew up in a church tradition, of just seeing this sort of moment that is sort of passed by, the ship has sailed, and now the church either doesn't exist or it talks about the times where things were good, the good old days back then. There's no real present flourishing, vibrant excitement, talks of what God is doing in our present and our future. How is it that so many churches who once functioned to live and to proclaim a resurrection future end up being relics of the past. This came really close to home for me a few weeks ago, which is why I think I was really stirred as I was studying this text. A couple months ago, um, I was invited to participate in a, like a historical denomination installation for their new pastor. Only happens like once in a blue moon that they get a new pastor and they were installing this person. And so they invited me as a, as a clergy member to be a part of this service because I'm friends with some of them in the denomination. And um, anyway, all that to say, it was interesting to walk in with all of the clergy and to process forward and to take our seats. 
and to look around at this prestigious moment where pastors and, and, and priests from all over the world had flown in to be a part of this. And what I realized in a moment's time was that the clergy far outweighed the number of congregants that came to receive the new pastor. And what was interesting too, and this is a denomination that's hundreds of years old, what was interesting is in this huge church building that they meet in regularly, perhaps 50 show up for a weekend gathering. And numbers aren't everything. Numbers don't always mean a lot in general. But I think what was particularly interesting for me as I reflected in my own church experience in the church in which I pastor and am a part of, and even in Renaissance this morning, reflecting on that, it's not that size is everything, but it is to say that I do think this congregation is tempted to tell, tell stories of what God once did rather than stirred up to continuing to tell stories of what God is doing and where God is leading us. It was almost like talking to some of their congregation, they were excited about what it meant historically, but it had kind of like all of the air from whatever balloon could have been inflated in that moment was kind of deflated. And they sort of saw themselves in a descent as a community. And so I think I would just begin simply with this question. Who's to say that that trajectory, the trajectory of the Hagia Sophia, the trajectory of this specific church moment that I had a few months ago in this denomination, who is to say that Renaissance Church won't one day follow that same trajectory? I mean, who's to say that we would somehow be immune to that sort of a thing? And I think the tragedy of that crisis is that some of you care a lot about that because you were here when this church began. Some of you care a lot about that because you've given since then your heart. Some of you are newer to the community and you've still given your time, your resources, all of your relational capital, things that you had to contribute to the vibrancy of this church. And we deeply want to see, especially if you're a parent, you know what it means to live into a faith that you believe and to desire to hand it off to the next generation. I have a daughter and and I longed for her to experience the beauty of what the church was designed to be in God's mind. I longed to see that passed down to her, to rise and to receive that incredible, incredible faith through the community. So I think this conversation matters. I think it's something that whether you've been a part of this church for some time or not, we all can sort of get behind to say, no, no, no. Like, we want to see whatever community we're, we're going to be a part of, we want to see it continue to proclaim a resurrection future and not become and trend toward a museum. So I'm going to say three things briefly this morning through the text. I want to talk about presence. I want to talk about progress. And I want to talk about proclamation. And I want to show you how obedience to the letter of Peter in these short seven verses can guard a church from trending toward museum. So let's begin. Verse four, come to him. To a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. I love, the first thing I want to talk about is presence. And I want you to focus on this first sort of phrase that Peter begins with. He says, come to him. Come to Jesus, right? The one you put to death. Come to him, a living stone. The one that was sort of the pillar of the church. The one who is the cornerstone of the structure of the people of God. Come to him. Notice Peter doesn't say come to it. Peter doesn't say, come to a program, come to like a weekend thing and just attend a meeting, put in your time at some sort of spiritual club. He doesn't talk about an institution here. He says, come to him. 
that in the center of what Peter wants to talk about for the church is though we do have programs and though we do have things that we're a part of and things that develop as part of the layers of what it means to be part of the community, Peter wants to make sure that the church is coming to Jesus, that the church is coming to a presence, that there's something in that that Peter does not want the church to miss out on. It was once said by a monk that I know who's much wiser than I. He once said to me, true spirituality is always meeting. It's always contact. He meant true spirituality is always encounter. It's never just what you think. It's never just theology. It's never just dogma. It's, it's an encounter. All of these things are designed to bring us into a closer encounter with the living God. And that is what Peter begins this section by saying, don't forget. I love even the mission statement that was read. You can see it on the stairwell on the way up and the way down as you leave today. It it talks about our passion. The passion of Renaissance Church is to be a place where people are growing in relationship with Jesus. Not just in doctrine, not just in ideas, though those things are good, but in relationship. In other words, when we gather as a church What we long for most is to experience and to pursue the presence of the living God. Now, if you think I'm crazy, and if you think I'm sort of reading into that text what I want for my own purposes, if you just go down a couple more lines, you see this strange term, and it's the term holy priesthood. Now, that term seems that when you talk about priesthood and priests and all of that, it kind of is this archaic, primitive type of language. Peter actually uses this term priesthood again, a few lines down before this text is over. He says, you're a royal priesthood. And for us, when we sit here in the 21st century, we think, why would Peter even use that language? The Old Testament sacrificial system was over with Jesus, and no longer do we have the Levites being the priests, the priestly tribe that would need to sort of mediate the presence of God to the people. Why is it that Peter would take us back into the Old Testament time period when Jesus has come to be both our high priest and our sacrifice. Why do we even need this language? Well, I I think there's a couple reasons. And before we begin to understand really the call into the presence of God and what Peter is inviting us into, we have to understand the function of the Old Testament priesthood. And I'm not going to be really complex with it, but just simply put, there were two things that the priests were called to. The first was this. Old Testament priests, which was the Levitical tribe, one tribe of the 12 was called to be in the presence of God. That was their vocation, that God pulled out, even as a tithe for himself, one tribe whose primary mission in life would be the presence of God. And one day a year, they would be given access. One person particularly would be given access to the fullness of God's presence. Presence, And so that, that was the call, that was the vocation. And yet it wasn't just to be in the presence of God in one sense. In one sense, it was the full vocation to experience and be in God's presence. But then to turn almost like two pillars seated and to mediate that presence to the community. That that was the priestly function. Experience God's presence and then mediate it in the form of joy, in the form of redemption, in the form of forgiveness to the community at large. That was the call of the priesthood. Only something changes after the cross. Do you remember after the cross, during that time when Jesus is on the cross, one particular gospel writer goes into great detail to say that a veil in the temple, 
that veil that was keeping the people out of the full access of God, except for the Levitical tribe, except for the high priest, that veil is all of a sudden torn. And there's all of a sudden access. And presence begins to flow out. It's no longer just about getting to the temple, but it's about the, the, the veil being opened and access being given to the world and also the presence of God leaking into creation. It's a really significant moment. And so what I'm about to say is the most important thing I'll probably say today, and it's this. The reason Peter talks about us as a priesthood, not me alone, but us, the church, is because through Christ, like the Levites, we have access to the presence of God that our ancestors before Christ longed to have. And not only one day a year, but every day and every moment. And that our call, just like the Levites, not only was to access the presence of God, but to then, like the Levites, turn and mediate that presence to culture, to society, in the form of joy, in the form of love, in the form of compassion, in the form of justice. And this isn't something you have to like conjure up and perform and make happen. It's something that you receive from the presence of God and turn and, and, and give to the world at large. And that's the call that Peter is beginning us with. It's really the call of spiritual growth. It's the call towards spiritual maturity in the presence of God. Now, it's interesting in spiritual maturity because spiritual growth is very different than other types of growth, such as, let's just say, biological growth. I'll give you an example. Spiritual growth is different than biological growth. Here's a, a picture of, of my daughter. This is Eloise, and she's uh, 16 months. She, I put the arrow here because she's in like the top 95th percentile of height. We have no idea why. I'm 5'10 on a good day. My wife's like 5'7", and so we can't quite figure it out. We don't know why. She's essentially like the Philistine baby. She's, she's ginormous, and, and we're thinking... You know, we're thinking the WNBA is a real, like, inevitability at this point. And not just, like, a possibility, but we're sort of, like, thinking about, well, what city would we want her to play for, and where would we want to visit? Yeah. Um, so, but it's interesting because biologically she grows while sleeping. Especially if you have newborns. You know that your, your babies sleep a lot because their cellular development at such an early age is just, is just scaling. It's such a massive amount. It's just intense. But spiritual growth is very different. Spiritual growth doesn't happen while we sleep or just by coming to a service, by osmosis. Spiritual growth happens based on how we choose to spend our waking hours. I once heard someone talk about spirituality in really simple terms that really resonated with me. Sometimes we can get so complex and ethereal and mystical. It's like, what are we really talking about? He said, spirituality is really choices. It's the choice to gather weekly in church to worship God, to seek the presence together. It's the choice each day to sit in God's presence with the scripture open before you. It's the choice to invite people that you trust into the hidden parts of your life because we need people praying for us. We need people with us. We need people understanding all of the hidden things that we'd rather keep secret. It's also the seemingly mundane choices we make every day that either move our hearts toward or away from the kingdom of God. And so this Sunday, I would just say, is a really great Sunday to check in, right? The Christmas schedule in all of its hectic reality 
is about to set in in about 2.5 seconds. The advertisements, the gifts, the list, etc., etc. I would just say this. Do you long to become more of the presence, to become more aware of the presence of God in your life? Like just brass tacks. Do you long to become more aware of the presence of God in your life? Somewhere in you, is, is there a longing to say, yeah, if God's presence was available, I'd be more interested in that. I think, I think that could be helpful for me. And the second thing that I would just ask you is, would you be willing to seek God's presence at some point in your day? Just, just willing to create time, space, scripture, prayer, whether it's before work or before the kids get up or whether it's during your lunch break or after the kids go down or whatever that looks like for you, willing to say what Henri Nouwen once said, one of my favorite writers, that all discipline is, we hear discipline like, oh, discipline. All discipline is is this. It's the effort to create space where God can speak. That's all it is. Are you disciplined? Do you create any space in your life where there's not email, there's not social media, there's not the to-do list, just for 15 minutes you know that all those things will be waiting for you, but you can just move into a time of moving all of that to the periphery and just being in the presence of God in whatever form that, it may not be spectacular, it often isn't, it's just a moment of peace and joy and stillness. I think those things are very interesting, full attention. And I think what we find is that when we as individuals commit to that kind of movement individually, personally, when we show up for something corporately, there's a sense of wanting to experience the presence of God together even more. And it's a really, really beautiful thing that the church can do. I think it's one of the ways in which Peter wants to say, here's how you don't trend toward museum. Seek the presence. The second thing is this, and like living stones. Did you see that? Christ is the living stone. And when we come to him, Peter says, and now since you are in Christ, you are now living stones. Your heart was even in other parts of scripture. It says it was a heart of stone, but now it's a heart of flesh. You are made living stones. Let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing I want to talk about briefly is progress. Talked about pre- presence. Let's talk about progress. But I want you to pay attention. Progress is a very modern term. It was always a term of upward mobility, that you'll be better and better and get more and more proficient in all of these things. But I just want to say, you have to pay attention because progress in Scripture isn't always what you think. You can't always take the world's definition of progress and just throw it onto the Scripture and assume it means the same thing. Because on one hand, I want you to notice something. In verse 4, Peter says, come to him come to him. In other words, it's active. You are willfully designed to make choices to come to him. And yet in the next line, he says this, and let yourselves be built up. In other words, Peter says, come to him actively. But once you're in his presence, become passive. And by passive, I don't mean lethargic and lazy. Come to him actively and then be surrendered. Release control. Release all of the the tyranny of the day's tasks. Release all of the ways in which you're afraid and you long for security and you long for all of these things that you're trying to figure out in your life that according to Peter, what it means to grow in the Christian life isn't just coming to Jesus actively, but then moving into a posture 
of passivity, a posture in which God can speak because we're surrendered, because we move into postures of trust, which you hear all the time, that you have to have faith in Christ. So what does faith in Christ mean? Faith in Christ isn't a noun as much as it is a verb. Faith in the Greek means trust. It's a better way to translate it for our time because I think when we read faith, we think about what exactly do you believe in order to go to heaven someday, whatever comes up for you in that, and that might be true. But I think what Peter is saying is come to a place where every day you're walking in trust, believing God is with you, that God is for you, God's going to provide. Just stay connected to the source of life, to the living stone. I think this phenomenon of surrender and really the challenge of, I know for me, um, it explains why men, and probably women too, but, but I can speak on behalf of men, we often are most available and open to God only after our egos have been shredded. You know what I'm talking about? You lose the job. You don't get the promotion. You lose the reputation. You finally come to a place in your life where you can admit my drinking is out of hand and I'm out of control. And the real illusion isn't that we're out of control, it's that we actually believed at one point we had it, that at one point we were sort of in control. I think that's the real illusion. And I think what happens in that place is kind of a grace. It's not a shame on us of like, man, I lost, all these things are going bad for me. I think sometimes this is when the gospel can really speak to us because we become really porous. We become really available. We become really surrendered, less guarded, more released for God to happen in our lives. Oddly enough, sometimes the greatest threats to all that we have moved to achieve in life, when we experience downfall and loss, it creates at the same time a pocket of hope for God to move in and to truly reveal how much we're loved how much our identities aren't actually tethered to our jobs, that our jobs aren't, aren't designed for us to achieve our identity. Our jobs are designed for us to express our identity. And that's through parenting, that's through your career, that's through all of these things. Your jobs don't achieve them, they express them. That's what it's designed to do. But Peter also tells us in this text that when we come to him, this living God, this presence, this longing to, f- to connect with you, that's t- longing to encounter you, that we're called to be passive in this way. And he says, he says, as you as a community are surrendered to Jesus, what happens is you become a kind of spiritual house. Now let me break this word down for a second. When I mean spiritual house, let's talk about this word house for a second. In the Greek, it's this word oikos. Oikos in the first century, for a listener of Peter's letter to hear that, they would immediately think family, non-institution. They would think the church was a relationship with others, not something that you attended as a program, right? That's what, they, that's what Peter is saying here, is that you're being built up into this kind of house. Notice he doesn't say you're being built up as individuals into like these privatized spiritual unicycles where you and Jesus can just go into the sunset together and that's it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that our purpose of being part of a church is to long to be built into a kind of house together where this floor plan is, is amazing, it's diverse, it includes all of these different giftings, all of the contribution of the people that show up. And really, when we start to think about the fact that the church was conceived to be a family, not an institution, what we find 
is that it challenges the way that you and I show up together when we come on Sunday. It challenges the way if you're an introvert like me, you just kind of want to sit in the back and sneak out. And I would just say, if you're an introvert like me, it's a detriment on the community, not like a shame thing for you, but to say, we need your voice. The church needs your voice. The church needs your gifts. The church needs your presence. We need all different types of personalities, social backgrounds, races, ethnicities to come and to give and to contribute to the amazing house that God is longing to make. Now, he says another thing. It's not just a house that's being built up in our sort of passivity toward God, our surrenderedness, but it's a spiritual house. In other words, it's animated by the Holy Spirit, not by clever leadership, not by good bands. And I love good music just as much as anybody. But a church that trends toward museum is the one that relies on personalities. It's the one that relies on all the gimmicks and all the hooks. But the one that can continue to experience the vibrancy not only seeks the presence of God, but is animated by the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual household, he says. And I think this is why Renaissance groups matter. It's why dining together regularly in our homes it matters. Something matters when something happens when we break bread together and we open that. It opens up a sort of Pandora's box of beauty, of all of these things of relational connectivity. Something happens when we begin to pray together and to let each other in to our little worlds. And then as we move into the third part of this text, Peter shows him that Jesus, the living stone, was actually not like a novel idea in the first century, that the prophets for thousands of years have been waiting and longing for him. And this is what it says. For it stands in Scripture, meaning the Old Testament Scriptures here. God prophesied, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a, he- and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they, o- they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you, church... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim, hang on to that word, proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The third and final thing I want to speak on this morning is proclamation. That churches that trend toward museums are those who have stopped seeking the presence and have begun to rely on a program. Churches that trend toward museums have ceased progressing in passive surrender. They've just decided that control is a better option. I'm just tired of being surrendered to God. I don't trust God. Churches that trend toward museums finally are those who have stopped proclaiming Jesus as Lord out of fear of offending. Not like a blast and a critique and a heavy condemnation Jesus as Lord, but an invitation. The beauty of this is that when Jesus is Lord, you don't have to be. And for those of us who have lived enough seasons, we know that that's actually good news. I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to be whatever version of success I inherited from my school or my family or my upbringing or whatever. I don't, that's not the ultimate determination of what it means to be human. When Jesus is Lord, there is a peace that comes with that. In the 1940s, the German government, they actually began sponsoring efforts to Nazify the Protestant German church. And many churches, due to financial incentive that they had, government protection and fear, they unfortunately caved. 
They gave in to this. And in a short amount of time, the church in Germany, which was the hotbed of theology in the Protestant Reformation, that no one would think would ever cave to the government, this church, the church in Germany, it replaced proclaiming Christ as Lord out of fear of governmental persecution. It just stopped. It stopped doing that. It stopped proclaiming that Christ is the one that gets our first allegiance. And so the church in Germany, it trended toward a museum. And no one would have ever thought in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century that by the 20th century, it's going to lose its footing. It's going to lose its conviction. And it's going to fall into temptation in order to make pacifying agreements with nationalism. And so as this happened, a Christian resistance movement against the Nazi regime known as the Confessing Church that, cl- that said we are going to proclaim Christ as Lord and not Hitler, it rose up and it sought God's presence and it stood up to its own governmental injustices and it proclaimed that Jesus was Lord and not Hitler, that God was their protector and not nationalism. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with this morning? It has a lot to do with this morning. Because I think for a church to thrive in any locale, Christ must be proclaimed as Lord. If it's going to have the strength of the Holy Spirit and the anointing and presence of God within it, it's going to claim that Jesus is where the fountains of life flow from. That's the reality. Christ must be proclaimed as Lord, not just from the stage, but from our lives, our very lives throughout the week. And this is really good news for the world. I know for the first time I came to Christ, it wasn't a threat to my identity. It was a liberation from all of the ways in which I was so contrived and bundled up and short-sighted and depressed. It was incredible. And here's the reality for us where we conclude this morning. Proclaiming Jesus as Lord is a really easy confession to say, but a really hard one to mean. At some point, to mean the confession that Jesus is Lord will begin to call in to question your unrestrained desires. It calls into question our financial practices. It challenges our, our arduous pursuit in doing whatever it takes to get the promotion. That following Jesus truly is never easy, but it's always worth it. And for some of you tonight, you have never, excuse me, this morning, have never actually crossed the threshold into that starting line of saying, I'm done trying to figure this out on my own. I'm done with my own solutions, and I'm ready to proclaim Christ as the Lord of my life. Not just Savior, but the one who is Lord. And if that's you, there are pastors who are here that would love to pray with you and dialogue more about that and lead you into first steps. But for most of us this morning, for most of us that claim to be Christian, I would just simply end by asking you this question. Where is there a place in your life where you claim that Christ is Lord, but you've yet to really mean it? You want it, and yet you're not yet there of saying, okay, I'm surrendered, and I really, I really want to mean it, Lord. I really want you to be Lord of my life in this area because I've tried it, and it's really just not working anymore for me. I love a good museum as much as anybody. But with regard to the church, museums only tell stories of the past. 
they have no vision for the future. And my greatest longing is that the church moves away from trending toward museum. And I think it happens that we just sort of slowly move toward museum because of this. And here's my confession. I think quite honestly, the reason we trend toward museum is because we start acting like museums. We stop pursuing the presence of God. We stop progressing in passive surrender toward the the lordship of Jesus and we stop proclaiming that Christ is the Lord of our lives. And so I would just invite you to stand with me this, this morning and I just want to say over you what's been known traditionally in the church as a benediction. It's a way of sort of saying a prayer over you and commissioning you into society to receive these things as good news and to be good news for our culture. And so receive this as from the Lord. May you, Renaissance Church, seek the presence of God this season, becoming more and more aware of God's nearness. May you, Renaissance Church, surrender passively into the one who seeks to grow you up spiritually to become like Jesus. And may you, Renaissance Church, proclaim Christ as Lord, not only from your lips, but in the whole of your lives this week. Go in peace. It was such a joy to be here again with you this week, and uh, I am now commissioned to send you out into society to love well. Have a good week.